In the name of the living God who was and is and is to come. Amen. My work is loving the world. Here the sunflowers, there the hummingbird, equal seekers of sweetness. Here the quickening yeast, there the blue plums. Here the clam deep in the speckled sand. Are my boots old? Is my coat torn? Am I no longer young and still not half perfect? Let me keep my mind on what matters, which is my work, which is mostly standing still and learning to be astonished. The Phoebe, the Delphinium, the sheep in the pasture and the pasture, which is mostly rejoicing since all ingredients are here which is gratitude, to be given a mind and a heart and these body clothes, a mouth with which to give shouts of joy to the moth and the wren, to the sleepy dug-up clam, telling them all over and over how it is that we live forever. Every few years, I'm moved to use this poem by Mary Oliver in a sermon. Many of you will know it or remember it, and hopefully the repetition enhances the experience and is not a bore. Repetition is hearing again, learning again, meeting again, choosing and committing again to our sacred work, as if for the first time. The gospel for today is rife with repetition, with echoes of themes, images, and language from earlier in the Gospel of John. Because last week's story of Thomas, found in the chapter right before the one where this story appears, is so climactic, some scholars differ as to whether the 21st chapter of John is original to the text or an addition. But I am struck by the power with which this story of disciples going fishing, of breakfast on the beach, and of Jesus' threefold question and Peter's response recapitulate and underline the gospel's central message and give a whole new life to the meaning of the resurrection. For these insights, I'm much indebted to scholar Caroline Lewis and her commentary on John's Gospel. It's a little startling to find the disciples back in Galilee, since we last saw them in the upper room in Jerusalem, where they were accosted by the risen Jesus. Somehow, they've gone back to their old haunts and old habits. Peter says, I'm going fishing. And the others say, oh, we'll go with you. Maybe they don't know what else to do since Jesus left them as quickly as he entered that locked room. Have they lost their nerve? Jesus greeted them with peace and told them not to be afraid, but 
Are they feeling some doubt? Not so much in Jesus as in themselves. Are they still struggling with shame for having abandoned, deserted, and denied him? The Sea of Galilee is the setting for an earlier call story, not in John, but in the Synoptic Gospels. Luke's account in particular echoes in our passage, for there too, the soon-to-be disciples, though they are experienced fishermen, labor all night and catch nothing. There too, Jesus calls to them from the shore, Try something a little different. Cast your nets down on the other side. There, too, they listen and they do what he suggests, even though they doubt that it will make any difference. They do it, nonetheless, and it yields a catch so enormous that they have trouble hauling all the fish to shore. In this story, Peter is in a boat with the disciple whom Jesus loved. As in a number of resurrection accounts, the disciples don't know Jesus at first, even though it is after daybreak. It seems that the body and the voice of the risen Lord are not exactly the same as they were before. But the beloved disciple does recognize him. It is the Lord, he says to Peter. What do you think tips the balance? I think it's the abundance of fish. From the very beginning of John's Gospel, God's abundance is known in the presence of the Word made flesh. From his fullness we have all received, John says, grace upon grace, grace upon grace. The evangelist emphasizes that Jesus' ministry begins with a miracle of abundance. Ordinary water changed into extraordinary wine and an occasion not of desperation, but of human love and rejoicing, the wedding feast at Cana. There is abundance, there is celebration, and there is joy. The breakfast Jesus is preparing on the beach also calls to mind another meal of bread and fish, broken and shared, given to 5,000 souls on a remote hillside from Jesus' own hands. He asks the disciples to bring the fish they have caught to add to the bounty, just as a small boy offered his loaves and fish to feed a multitude. In John, there is no story of the institution of the Eucharist. Instead, Jesus tells the crowd on that hillside that he is not only the feeder, he is the food for their soul's deepest longing. I am the bread of life, he says, and the food I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. In provision and feeding, even in, des in deserted places, the presence of the holy is abundantly known. In the first calling of the disciples in John, Jesus says to those who are curious about him, come and see. Here he says, come, have some breakfast. What's more, in another passage that resonates richly with this one, Jesus, naming himself as the Good Shepherd, 
tells them that he has come so that those who follow him, his sheep, may have life in its fullness, abundant life. By this, he does not mean life full of material goods and status. This is pretty far from the good life that is the dream of our culture, a dream that has become a nightmare of consumption, competition, and the collapse of the natural world and human communities. This is not the abundance of stuff. It is not life without risk or vulnerability. Rather, the abundant life that Jesus comes to give is full of generosity and grace, abundant with sharing and community, steeped in opportunities to love and to be loved, calling forth the fullness of our humanity because it is grounded in profound trust in God's abundant goodness. When the beloved disciple exclaims that the figure on the beach is Jesus, Peter jumps into the sea. And here is another odd detail. John tells us that Peter is fishing naked, but then he puts on clothes to swim to shore. It's really counterintuitive, isn't it? Maybe first-century fishermen did their work naked. Fishing might be hot or wet or very messy. But why would you put on clothes that would surely weigh you down in the water? Theologian Cheryl Lindsay suggests a connection with yet another Bible story, the story of Adam and Eve, newly conscious of their nakedness after eating from the tree of knowledge, ashamed, covering themselves when they hear the voice of God calling them. Is it too much to imagine that Peter though he may be eager to see Jesus again, is all too aware of his bitter failure to live up to his brave promises of devotion and commitment when Jesus was arrested and tried. Do we even know that he jumps into the sea in order to swim to shore? He does end up there, but maybe he doesn't quite know where he's going. Maybe he's torn with the desire both to conceal and to reveal himself. On Maundy Thursday, Mother Posey spoke movingly of the healing of shame, of God's grace offered tenderly for our naked need and our fear of being known in all our complex reality as Jesus washed the disciples' feet. In that story, too, Peter struggled. He resisted and he yearned. Peter is so often a stand-in for all of us, isn't he? Eager, impetuous, clueless, overconfident or deeply self-doubting, and full of devotion, and sometimes gifted with prophetic insight. So we can identify with him, we can take comfort from his struggles and failures, and learn from how Jesus interacts with him. Here on the beach, the fish is cooking over a charcoal fire. The specificity is sharp. There's only one other mention of a charcoal fire in the gospel. It is, of course, at Jesus' trial. It's lit in the courtyard of the high priest's house where Jesus has been taken. Peter has followed, 
And there he is recognized by one of the high priest's servants who says, You're one of this man's disciples, aren't you? Peter, full of fear, repeats three times with increasing emphasis, I am not. Caroline Lewis points out that in John, unlike in the synoptics, Peter does not deny that he knows Jesus. He denies that he is Jesus' disciple, his follower, one who studies and belongs to Jesus, who is learning to walk in Jesus' way. So Peter denies his own identity and calling, as well as his connection to Jesus. After breakfast, in a detail that touches me, because apparently the important conversation can wait until sustenance is given and received. Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Three times he asks, and three times with increasing emotion and some hurt that the first and even second answer are not enough. Peter answers, Lord, you know that I love you. What is not said is surely Peter's awareness that Jesus also knows how Peter has failed to love. A shame that he cannot conceal from this one who knows him so deeply. But Peter also must trust that Jesus knows, despite it all, that Peter does love him as best he can. If Peter doubts that Jesus will forgive and receive him and restore their relationship, the Lord's instruction, which is also given three times, is the answer. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, enflesh your love for me by loving those that I love. In fact, that is where Jesus will continue to be found and loved with those who are vulnerable and marginalized and hungry, who need teaching and sustenance, support and solidarity. Maybe the question is whether Peter can accept this grace of restoration, whether he can trust that his love will be enough for the work to which Jesus calls him. The imagery of sheep will be on full display next week because the fourth Sunday of Easter is Good Shepherd Sunday. We don't much like being compared to sheep. They're not particularly smart or distinguished or brave. But the truth is that just as Jesus is called both shepherd and lamb, so we who follow him are both sheep vulnerable in our need and dependent on grace, and we are called to shepherd, to care for one another, and also to care for, as Jesus says, the other sheep who are not of this fold, those outside our own communities and comfort zones who are beloved of God. Jesus, the Good Shepherd, is telling Peter that discipleship will no longer be what it was before. It will no longer be listening and learning and accompanying 
the shepherd. Peter is to step into Jesus' own work of shepherding. He is called despite his failures and fears. Maybe he's even called because of them. Because like us, I suspect he has learned a great deal from the struggles that require him to depend on God's abundant grace. The passage ends with Jesus' sobering word that Peter will find that this love will take him to places he cannot anticipate, may not choose, and perhaps would rather not go. The love of the good shepherd for the sheep may lead Peter, too, to lay down his life for those in his care, his beloved friends. He has faced this fear before and faltered because of it, but this time he will face it in the light of the resurrection, trusting in a love that is stronger than death. Peter is called to leadership, indeed, but not uniquely so. Here, too, he is like us, each of us, called by love to be the presence, heart, and hands of Jesus in the world. Love is awareness, delight, and self-giving. It is friendship and struggle and service. It is work and risk and perseverance. Tending, feeding, caring for the ones, everyone, that Jesus loves. This story reminds us that when we lose heart and return to what is comfortable and safe, when we fail and make mistakes, Jesus pursues us, feeds us, invites us again and again to grow, to choose, and to participate in God's abundance. Jesus invites us to live into resurrection and the way of love that will give us life. Our work echoes not only the poet, but also John's greatest proclamation, God so loved the world. This is not abstract or sentimental. Always the love is particular, a matter of paying attention of appreciating, of care and commitment. So we discern how we are called to love. It may be a specific person or a place, a work of creation or repair or justice-making. We will be invited to offer our particular gifts no matter how small they seem. If we pay attention, with gratitude and open hearts, if we respond to the needs in front of us and the love within us persistently, faithfully, and willing to learn, we will surely find that this work expands, teaches, and changes us. Feed my sheep. Look after my lambs. Loving the world is our work giving flesh to God's own love. The risen Jesus says to us, as to Peter, follow me. Amen.